As I think about the work that our guest Chris Ornati has been doing, I'm reminded of an SNL sketch the Saturday after the election with Dave Chappelle. Many of you surely saw this, but I think it resonates even more today than when it was first aired. Dave Chappelle's watching the election results with three of his white friends. The white friends start out cocky about Hillary winning. I can't believe after all this, it's going to finally be over. I don't know. We'll see. Trump's already got lawyers to fight the results. Okay, don't even joke about that or I will leave. Guys, we're about to have our first woman president. Like, this is going to be a historic night. But Chappelle, as a black man, is less certain. My friend at the Huffington Post says she wins by five points. Oh, I don't know. My friend at Slate says she'll win by three. Oh, well, she'll definitely win the Electoral College, for sure. But I guess there's like a nightmare scenario where he wins the popular vote. Really? That's your nightmare scenario, huh? As the night goes on, the white friends start to get worried. And we project Kentucky will go to Donald Trump. Yeah, well, of course he won Kentucky. I mean, that's where all the racists are. Dave looks around suspiciously. All of them are in Kentucky? Chris Rock joins the party. Hey, guys, what'd I miss? As Trump is winning... Oh, my God. I think America is racist. Oh, my God. You know, I remember my great-grandfather told me something like that. Was like a slave or something. The final line from the white friends as Dave and Chris just laugh. God, this is the most shameful thing America has ever done. <laughs> Obviously, he's forgetting slavery. I share the audio from this sketch because it uses humor to point out something very true. Most of us are in a bubble of some sort. Maybe multiple bubbles, not just racial bubbles, as the sketch points out, but also media bubbles, like the references to Huffington Post and Slate, and socioeconomic bubbles. If I'm honest with myself, I know almost nothing of what it would be like to be an African-American working-class person in rural Pennsylvania, or a white store owner in Indiana whose house was foreclosed on after a global financial crisis that started with American banks that were bailed out by the government, and from whose ranks zero people were ever punished. Do you know what that's like? For most of us, this episode will primarily be an exercise in crossing some cultural divide. Chris has made it his mission to spend time where no one else goes willingly, listening to poor Americans of all races, but the timing of his work coincided perfectly with Trump's campaign. I won't give away too much, I'll let Chris tell his own story, but here's what you might want to keep in mind while you listen to him. How might you listen better to the other half of America, whichever side you're not on? And what might it feel like to truly believe that the entire system that runs your country or your state really doesn't care about you and your friends or family? And here I don't just have in mind Trump enthusiasts, but as we'll hear from Chris, working class communities of color as well. Chris Arnotti, thank you so much for joining us. I have been in love with your tweets and many of your articles for the last year or so, maybe eight months. But tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, both your photography and your journalism, political writing, as well as what you did before this. Yep. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I have a somewhat non-traditional background um, for what I'm doing now. 
I got a PhD in physics. Um, I got it from Johns Hopkins, particle physics, theoretical physicist. I left after getting my PhD and I went to Wall Street. And from 1993 to 2013, 2012, I was a bond trader. If you've seen, if you've read Liar's Poker, that was me. If you've seen Bonfires of the Vanities, um, those sort of things. I worked at Solomon Brothers. I was on a trading floor. I yelled at people. I bought and sold stuff and all that. Lived in Brooklyn Heights and uh, slowly became disenchanted with the career I had um, and started um, spending my time, what free time I had, um, walking around New York City taking photos and listening to people's stories. I tended to focus on parts of New York that people told me not to go to. And so I ended up in the Bronx. It's a neighborhood in the Bronx that um, is um, infamous, sadly, for um, its, uh, its crime rate, its poverty, and its, its addiction. What was that neighborhood called? Hunts Point. Hunts Point. HBO did a very salacious show about it in the 90s called Hookers at the Point, about uh, the prostitution in Hunts Point. I became close friends with, uh, there's a large community of people who live on the streets, homeless, and are um, heroin addicts and crack addicts, and I uh, became close to a lot of them, and for three years, I was um, uh, documenting their lives as well as also being um, friends to them. I, I quit Wall Street to do this, needless to say, and I was spending my time in um, drug traps under bridges, driving them across country, um, taking them, them my friends, um, following their journeys into, um, into um, jails and hospitals and rehab clinics and some into, into cemeteries who died. Um, my, my job was documenting addiction. And at some point, I decided to see the, the kind of world of addiction and homelessness I, I saw in um, the Bronx was true elsewhere. And so I started going on the road in my car, driving across the United States, going to places where people told me not to go. I'd come into a town, and if I ask, I'd ask someone, you know, where shouldn't I go? And they would say, you know, go to the intersection of Genesee and Buffalo, and that's where I'd go. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I just started hanging out in these towns and communities and taking pictures. And my original interest was uh, addiction and poverty. And at some point, I think it was uh, about a year and a half ago at this point, almost two years ago, I decided to formalize a little bit more, and roughly every six weeks or so, I'd get in my car and drive somewhere and spend two weeks there, uh, sometimes three weeks, and just talk to people and just write about what I saw and photograph. And it was initially a project on addiction and poverty, and so it took me to places like Buffalo, Selma, Alabama, Prestonburg, Kentucky, El Paso, um, Nagadis, Louisiana, um, Worcester, Massachusetts. But over the course of that time, the election had started, and I guess I would say, simply put, where where I went, I would go into communities where I saw, I used to say where I saw hope leaving, I was seeing um, drugs entering. Yeah. And then I kind of had another side effect, which I didn't intend to write about or photograph or talk about, which is where I saw hope leaving and drugs entering, uh, if it was a white community. I saw Trump supporters. Yeah. And so that kind of became what I started writing about. I started writing about the, the political atmosphere. And uh, it led me to a place where I kind of started finding I was getting frustrated by 
what I was seeing on the ground versus what I was seeing reading in the media, reading in newspapers and seeing in, you know, this general simple dialogue that Trump voters were just racist or just dumb. And I started pushing back against that, saying it was a little bit more complicated than that. And uh, that kind of got me um, in some trouble. Um, and it also got me some people who I think were more receptive to that argument. Yeah. And it led me to basically be in a point where prior to the election, I said, you know, I don't think Trump's going to win this election, but if he doesn't win this election, someone like Trump will win, certainly someone soon. And so, yes, I was surprised Trump won, but I really wasn't surprised because I was seeing a lot of support for him, a lot of support. Yeah, a lot of times what you would hear from people or see online was, you know, people in some of these non-coastal areas going, look, guys, I know you've got polls and stuff, but literally everyone I know is voting for him. And it's never been that way with any other Republican candidate. So sort of that rural turnout or that ex exurb turnout or whatever, people on the ground were saying, we're talking about that before it happened. Yeah. You know, there was two things I saw that one of them I was very, very aggressive about pointing out, which was the energy was there. Yeah. And, and, and these communities I was going that I would call them back row communities in the sense that there are places without an elite college nearby. They didn't have a, you know, an industry that was, um, that was built around um, you know, people giving jobs to people with higher degrees. But in these towns that had kind of lost their factories and and you know these smaller communities I was seeing in white communities I was seeing a lot of energy and I was seeing a lot of people who had voted for Obama um, who said no I just I just can't vote for Hillary that I wrote about a lot the other thing I was seeing that I didn't write as much about I alluded to quite a bit was when I I spent more time in in working class black neighborhoods working class Latino neighborhoods and well, I certainly didn't see support for Trump there I didn't see the amount of anger towards him that I, ex- I, I certainly expected to see. Hmm. I saw a lot of resignation. I saw a lot of frustration. I saw a lot of people who had basically checked out of the system, partly because the system had checked them out. But I didn't see the, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm in the working class minority communities for Hillary either. So although they certainly didn't like Trump, they, they didn't love Hillary. So, you know, putting those two together, kind of in some senses, it all kind of made sense um, after the election to me. Yeah, and that, that is basically the, the narrative is that, you know, the rural counties and the white working class, whatever, areas came out strong and increased their turnout. Trump had a little more turnout than Romney 2012, but overall, but those minority communities did not end up coming out for Hillary in the way they did for Obama and, you know, a lot of people say that's that you, you take that spread right there. You've easily got the election. Right. I mean, you know, um, by the way, our system works. He needed, he had the energy in the States. He needed to have the energy. Yeah. And, uh, the moon's aligned and here we have them. And, you know, I, I didn't vote for him. Um, I don't support him. Um, but my, my, my experience makes me, I guess, look at the whole thing and, and, and I feel like I'm less surprised by it. And I think, I think when you look at, when you take a little, little bit, look back and, and look at the country we've built and the amount of inequality we have in this country, it's kind of a recipe for something like this. 
Um, that doesn't justify it, but it, it doesn't uh, diminish the, the ugliness of what we're going to see, but it kind of explains it in my mind at least. Well, what I love is I'm willing to listen to you warn me about what's going to come in America. The reason that I'm willing to listen to you warn me is because I can tell that your primary loyalty lies with the people of America, us and especially the sort of disenfranchised people of our country. I'm less excited to hear people warn me who have no skin in the game other than their own self-interest. And so I thank you for being that kind of a voice while also walking the, your talk, basically, or walking your walk. And I think it gives you some more credibility. Yeah, well, thank you. And I would say that despite all that, I'm not really going to be harmed by this. And that's the people are going to be harmed by this. Are the, uh, when Trump was elected, I looked back and I said, you know, someone said, I'm sorry. And I said, well, I don't worry about myself. And I don't worry about a lot of people. I worry about the, a lot of the communities I met. I worry about the minority communities I spent time in who are going to be really, really devastated. Um, I worry about many of the people who voted for Trump, and I, I feel for them in the sense that I think they're not going to get what they wanted to get. Um, and so, sadly, in our country, you know, the people who the people who who are at the top rarely <laughs> rarely suffer. Um, and th- in this case, this is another example of where I think, unfortunately, I think there was a lot of justified anger that was behind um, the election. It's not clear to me that the outcomes are going to be the way they necessarily want it. Yeah. So what was the general mood? Um, and I, I imagine that you, you might still be in touch with, with some of these folks, and it'd be interesting to to talk about if anything has changed, even though Trump's only at the time of this taping, he's only been in office for a handful of days. But what can you describe the mood? These folks who were in these kind of forgotten communities, how did they describe their experience to you? I think the way to think about it is the phrase, and they won't use this term because just it's just not not the nature of people to say this. But I think there was a great deal of humiliation. I think the phrase I use a lot is humiliation. There was a sense of they had something good once and it was gone. There's a very simple test I, I, to me that says whether or not you voted the way you did, which is to ask somebody, do you think your life is better than your parents' life? And do you think your children's life is going to be better than your life? And almost to a, to a person, the people who ended up voting for Trump all said, I don't think my children's life is going to be better than my life. And that wasn't crazy for them to think that. From their measure, from their sense of what they valued, their valuation framework is a little bit different than a lot of the listeners might. might, might. They're certainly different than my valuation framework going into this whole project. Is you know, It wasn't just about money. It was about community. And it was about place. And it was about their town and about their church. And all those things you know, have been devalued over the last 30 years. And so when they say to me, no, my life, I don't think my children's life is going to be better than mine. That isn't just them being crazy. In their worldview, that's very much true. And I would say there was this, you know, one of the the most damning statements I heard came recently, and it was from a woman who, um, she was in Battle Creek, uh, Michigan, which is where they make Kellogg's and cereal. And 
it actually smells like it actually smells like cereal. <laughs> um, and the town has suffered a lot. It's lost some of those factories. They now make Fruit Loops or whatever. They make in Mexico now. They don't make it in Battle Creek. There's still some factories, but they're about half what they used to be, or about even less. They're about a fourth of what they used to be. And she's retired, and she worked at Kellogg's, and her husband worked at Post, and they had a good life. And she's 82, and she actually voted for Hillary. And she said, um, she says, I'm glad I'm 82. I wouldn't want to be young. Wow. And I said, you know, what do you mean? She goes, well, I had a good life, and I can't say that my nieces and nephews who are six and seven, and I can't project forward and say their life is going to be good. And so I'm glad I'm 82. I'm glad I'm facing the end. You know, and... That attitude, I heard quite a bit. It's not dissimilar to why, in my opinion, you see, you know, one of the things I noted early on that subsequently has been picked up is if you look at a map of where the addiction rates have gone up, where heroin has skyrocketed, where suicide rates have gone up, where life expectancy has gone down, that's where Trump, it looks very much like a map of where Trump outperformed versus Romney. Yeah. And it's kind of what that woman said to me in Battle Creek, which is, you know, through my work of addiction, I've, I always say that heavy drug use, falling into an addiction is a form of suicide. It's just a slower form. Um, well, you could imagine, uh, you know, if someone on the left is having a hard time imagining what the emotional tenor is in some of these towns, just think about like a black or Latino family in South Central Los Angeles, where they the assumption is their kid has a really high chance of ending up in a gang, has a low chance of graduating high school and going to college. There's a kind of a, a sadness, a humiliation, a resignation there. There is an expectation of failure to be very likely in tragedy. Well, one of the things, um, there's a famous sociological book about this, about African-American communities called Code of the Street. It was summarized for me very well by, a, by, by an African-American gentleman, a black man, in the housing projects in Cleveland. Um, when, I, when I went for the GOP convention, I, I didn't go down to the convention. I just spent my time in a black working-class neighborhood and then half the time in a black, white working-class neighborhood. And I was in the projects, though I think it's the Wayeth House. I can't pronounce it. Wyeth. It's, it's one, of the, one of the United States' first housing projects, and it's not doing well. It's in central Cleveland only about an hour, a mile and a half away from the GOP convention, but you wouldn't know the GOP convention was going on. And there was a gentleman who I became friends with, and, and he showed me around, and we got close, and I, I spent the week with him. And, and these pro- housing projects, and he, and he just, one point, we were at, at night, we were sitting there at McDonald's sharing a meal, and he said, he said yeah, it's pretty simple, because we had this interaction where some people tried to like, you know, get tough on us. And he, he dealt with it well, some kids, some 18-year-old kids. And, you know, he said, look, when, when, when you have nothing, respect is all you have, hmm. you know, and that's all you got. And, you know, when, when, when the world isn't working for you economically, when the world isn't valuing you, you don't feel valued, you need, you need respect somehow. And then comes with this whole, this need for respect. And I wrote a piece saying that I think that's what Trump voters wanted, that, that same idea, just respect me. Just you know, show me some show me some respect because you know it's not working for me. I don't feel like I'm being valued. They're certainly not being valued economically, and they don't feel like they're being valued socially. And you know that's that's a that's a touchy subject because part of the reason they don't feel like they're being valued socially is because they are being 
you know, because of their, their whiteness no longer holds, holds precedent. And, you know, that's a good change. I'm glad that that doesn't have it. But when it's going along at the same time, when they're being devalued economically, you know, there's this, just, there's this just lashing out, this I want respect. Hmm. So I want to talk about these values. Uh, you talk about the way they value their lives in these communities is, is different than the way you value. And it makes me think of this book I am now ad nauseum quoting, which is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He identifies all these moral foundations. He has six of them. The liberals really only speak to three, and conservatives speak to all six, but they focus more on the three that liberals don't focus on, and those three are loyalty, authority, and sanctity or divinity. And I've also been listening to an audiobook, The Strangers in Their Own Land, about Tea Party folks. And there's tons of overlap. And what's kind of becoming clear to me that I was not thinking about six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, is that for people with more conservative value systems, they think that like fundamentally the local community, the church, these are better places to receive aid than from the federal government. And they see the federal government as like taking the place of community where it shouldn't. It can't do as good of a job. You can't get the same thing you can get from your local church from the unemployment office or from food stamps or whatever. Did that kind of uh, argument come up when you spent time with these people? Oh, definitely. That's, 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 I would say that's spot on. I put it in slightly different words. Okay. But I, I say that the division I talk about, I call it the front row kids and the back row kids. Now, the front row kids I talk about is kind of the the you know the 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 people who went to elite education, the Harvard sociologist, the the bond trader, the lawyer, the chemist, the person who works at IBM, the pundit on TV, the <laughs> the lawyer. Yeah, these are people you know the kind of general cosmopolitan worldview, and I say that where they find their meaning and and, and ultimately their morality is from their career and intellectual pursuits. You know. How you define yourself is by your career. You'll move for it. You'll go globally. You'll, your friendships come from your career. And it defines who you are. And how you define kind of what's right and wrong is through kind of rational arguments in, in numbers. You know, it's this idea that I can beat you in an argument because I have, um, you know, I have the books on my side. Yeah. Faith is irrational. And, you know, that's, that's generally the framework you have. It's just this very... It thinks of itself as being extraordinarily open-minded, and in many ways it is. It certainly is more open-minded, and when it comes to the definition of uh, race and gender equality, yeah, in terms of accepting new products. However, in my mind, and this is what was kind of revealed to me on this trip, and where it, for me was very personal because that's me. That's my me. I got a PhD in physics. I was a bond trader. What, what I started realizing is what I, I call the other group of Americans and, uh, you know, this other, the, the Trump voters are part of that, is the back row kids. These are people who might not have that education. They kind of stay where they are born. They value community. Their primary social network and their, and their meaning is, comes from things beyond their career, beyond their jobs, like their town, like their church. And there's a um, sociologist who wrote, about working class, I forget her name, Michelle Lamont, I believe it is, and she talks about 
their ethos being the decency of hard work. That's where their morality comes in. I put in, I worked hard and that's, you know, that's, I, I did my, I, I earned my keep and I earned my keep for my family and nobody helped me. And, you know, if they helped me, they were part of my community. They weren't some outsider. And those two worldviews, those two senses of meaning and morality clash. They don't understand each other. <laughs> and I think this is where a lot of the problem comes from. So you ask me, how does my old self look at this new sense I see? And a lot of it comes in when I try to have discussions. I think you and I and others would look at these things and say, this doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't they want a handout? Or, you know... Why are they voting against their own interests? Yes, yeah, so all those things. But, but yeah. you know, when you reframe it, when you fra- reframe it in the proper context... You know, and I always say that there's one thing I tell people: just think about the context that people make their decisions. And you know, the old adage, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. When you think about from the context, it's not irrational. It's it's they're voting, they're thinking about the things in the way they give themselves value, in the way they you know, and it's also it's it's self interest as well. I mean, this is what they find value from. Well, I think we should. I think we'd be derelict to not um, mention. That huge study that came out, you know, maybe five years ago about that village in Italy where like nobody got cancer and people lived like 10 years longer than the average Italian and they had like incredibly good health. Everybody went and they tried to figure out, well, are they eating anything different? You know, is their produce coming from somewhere else? And they found that, no, the difference between that village and the rest of the world was these people were in close, tight-knit community with each other from cradle to grave. And it extended their life. It did. Like, scientifically, it did extend their life. And so it's funny because I think, like myself, front row kids on the left, we can really sort of convince ourselves that our educated Western view of things is correct. But in this particular instance, we're wrong, or at least our actions are moving in the wrong way because what the front row kid life leads to is increased isolation, more time on your devices, less time with your neighbors, less knowledge of who lives next door to you, right? I mean, these are the kind of things you find. And then a lot of sort of highbrow conversations about how to fix the world or whatever. So I just think it's, we well, need at I, least, yeah. The way I say it is, the way I say it is, look, at, at, at the core, everybody wants to feel meaningful. I mean, that's a, that's a mouthful of a word. But everybody wants to feel meaningful. Everybody wants to feel – what is that? What do I mean by that? Everybody wants to, be, wants to feel a valued member of something bigger than themselves. Yeah. They want to be valued. Now, how they get that valuation is different. So you, know, you talk about the front row kids. You talk about us. If you're a lawyer or you're a university professor, you're being valued. Um, society is looking at you and saying, you know, presently – you, you may not necessarily feel it. You know, not everybody who has these, they may say, like, oh, man, I'm struggling to get a job. I got a PhD in philosophy. But, you know, you're, yeah. you're part of a community, and that community is people who say, oh, my God, you know, you got a PhD. You're smart. You can talk. You, you know, it, it, it's your network. It's, yep. um, and I think in the back row, that means being a member of the community. That means being a member of a community that works. And the problem is right now is the communities aren't working. And they're not working because of policies that have been put in place, over, in, my, in my opinion, over the last 30 years that have degraded the value of community. Because we, the front row kids, you know, and, and this is where I, uh, I keep on hammering home is 
That's all well and good what I just said, but why why the anger? And the anger partially is because the front row kids have won. They've yeah. put in place, you know, the, the the technocratic class have won, and they put in place these policies that, in my opinion, have and what I saw on the on the ground have eroded much of the community that exists in these towns. Now, the pushback will be, but you know, a lot of these people voted for these policies, and that's partially true, but that's that's now the pushback is they, they didn't necessarily think that's what they were voting for. They didn't right. say, "Hey, I want you to go, you know, ship my jobs overseas and and you know and and destroy my community and and never never look back." Well, and of course, you can't label someone's voting habits based on the results that their vote produced, like after the fact. Like, so for instance, you can't say. Well, all you Obama supporters sure love drone strikes, right? I mean, it's like we didn't know what Obama's decisions about drone strikes would be, and some of us are very uncomfortable with where he took that. But you 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 can't, yeah. You end up – the problem with voting in a dual system is you end up having to accommodate things you may not want. (laughs) Right, and I am – you know, as kind of a political moderate, I think that that ends up working slowly but pretty well over time, especially to avoid large-scale tyranny. But it just means you have to be really careful not to judge voters, not to ascribe too much intention in too many areas to someone who chooses one of two options in a in a large voting situation. Right. I mean, I, I, I would say that I, I'm on the same – I agree with that. Apologies for interrupting the flow of conversation here, but just a quick word to let you guys know that I've started a Patreon campaign for the show. Patreon is a service that allows you to contribute to the show monthly and receive exclusive content as a thank you. Patrons will be invited to a patron-only web chat once a month where we'll talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Also, I'll take notes and suggestions for the show from you. Depolarize costs me about $400 a month out of my own pocket. That money goes for audio editing, hosting, and a small amount of promo and admin work from an assistant of mine. This does not include any of my own time. So my first goal is simply to get these costs covered. If you're interested, there's a Become a Patron button up at depolarizepodcast.com, or you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize. Thank you guys for your continued listening and support and for continuing to share episodes with friends. We are growing slowly, and I think we have an amazing community of people here. Thanks. I'd like to get your view on another one of those moral foundations that the right uses that the left really ignores, and that's authority. Now, the reason that the left kind of ignores the moral foundation of authority is pretty easy to fill in. We are fundamentally skeptical that any authority is legitimate or, you know, even if we love America and support the military, we're also like a little bit weirded out by how the military is used to further our interests, you know, in Latin America or in the Middle East. And we don't like Saudi Arabia, what they're doing, and maybe we're pro-Palestine. And so, yeah, we, we are grateful to live in America, but we don't really know we don't we honestly are confused on the left about like how much loyalty to give our nation, how much to give our president. You know, when it's Obama, we feel pretty good about it, but we didn't give Bush very much loyalty. And there's a 
kind of an idea on the right that's like, no, uh, even despite America's various failures and shortcomings, you cannot have America without really significant loyalty to it. And then if you want to change it, you change it from the inside. But anything like Kaepernick kneeling for the anthem, anything, anything not supporting the troops, any whatever kind of anti-military sentiment or anti-loyalty or questioning any sort of process is seen as like, no, that's default bad because you need this to keep a society going. Did you pick up on that talking to people? It was, it wasn't something I explored much, but I will say that um, I'll say this and then I'll go, I'll go on a slight tangent, which is, um, you know, you talk about the very much the sense of, the, you know, I, I talk about the sense of needing meaning into something larger being valued as something. And I think, at a local level, on a, on a very, very day-to-day basis, that means your local, you know, and, this, and for many of the people I knew, that means their local community. This means, you know, their congregation, their town, their county, their high school football team. But overarching on that, what's kind of holding it all together is this nationalism. This, you know, I'm in America, and that's great, and I'm, I'm fortunate to be here, and we, I need to, you know, it goes to the whole concept I talk about of kind of, decency of hard work. I'm going to, you know, and part of that is in the military and the police, right? You know, they just work their, they work hard. <laughs> they, you know, they follow the rules. They do what they're supposed to do. Um, they don't accept handouts. They, they, you know, there's this real, this real valuation of kind of courage and strength. Um, and nationalism plays right into that. Um, I think, you know, it goes back to the larger framework I said of just, Intellect versus strength. You know, the the front row was about intellect, and the back row was about strength and hard work. And I think nationalism, the way they see nationalism, is played out. You know, is rendered through strength, and the way liberals see nationalism is it's rendered through you know the concept of America, the idea, the yeah, you the, hold these ideas. But one of the things I think is missing from the dialogue, and I haven't I haven't talked about it much, is. I say part of the reason Trump is here is because we front row kids ran things. And I think we ran things very badly. We made some huge mistakes. In my opinion, you know, from my perspective, that, that mistake was the financial crisis. And then we bailed ourselves out. But yeah. I would say the Iraq war was also a, a massive mistake. And it's one that I think most liberals admit and understand was a mistake and knew was a mistake. But a lot of the soldiers who fought those wars come from these towns I go to. The working class, both black and white, fill up the military. And so that experience and that sense that the Iraq war was a mistake, I think is, is put, plays a lot into where we are now in terms of, our, uh, in terms of the anger. Because remember, Trump was as much about, and the revolt that Trump represents was as much about overthrowing the Republican Party and the, and, and the front row kids in that party, the Bushes and the and the well, the Bushes and the Bushes, right? Yeah. <laughs> as it was about overthrowing kind of the liberal um, front row. That's kind of the beautiful thing about the clarity of Trump's message during the primary was that he was just attacking everybody. He could attack the Republican elites and the media and the liberal elites. And he only needed to get, you know, 40 percent of of primary voters in that big field. But the other thing I'll say for Trump is there was a little meat on the bones of all of those attacks. 
They were not completely manufactured. Most of what Trump ran for was not straight-up fantasy, but was an exaggeration of a smaller truth. He was, he was, look, I, I've always said he, he was, he was, you voting for Trump, you're, you're voting for burning down the system. And the system wasn't working for, if the system was working for you, you didn't want him. If the system wasn't working for you, you wanted him. Yeah. With the exception, with the exception, with the exception of uh, minority communities. And that's a little, I can argue that there was an equal amount of that going on there. That's why they didn't turn out to the degree they, 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 people expected them to turn out. But I would say that he was about breaking the system as, as people saw it, the status quo. And, you know, there was a time in the, the only time, the only time in all his ramblings where I felt like, Hey man, (laughs) that guy made some sense where he went on a one minute dialogue against Jeb Bush about, you know, why, why do we do this war? You know, (laughs) you know, you know, yeah. What, 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 what was going on, man? Like, you know, it's, it's, because I remember Jeb just as usual, well, you know, my brother kept me safe talking point. And he's, well, actually, no. <laughs> yeah, and, he didn't, right. Yeah, and, and but that was the only time where I thought, you know, hey, if I'm sitting there listening to them and I only heard that, I'm like, you know, that moment when I felt like, you know, this was politically incorrect, but it was right, was how a lot of his voters thought about almost everything he said. When he was being... um at his worst, in his mind, he was getting three things out of it. He was getting the attention he wants. He was getting the front row to yell at him, which only made the back row people like him more. And um, he was um, attacking the front row, um, and, and uh, you know, and just proving again to the back row that that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Well, and that's definitely more true. In the primary, like because I think people who vote for Trump for president, they basically have two options. A lot more people are fall into far more nuanced pools. You know, family members of mine who voted for Trump did not do so to blow up the system. They did so because of, you know, they run small businesses and they're worried about small business tax rates and they're there and they share some of the cultural worries about hard work and handouts and church community, you know, and stuff like that. They have worries about Supreme Court and abortion. But certainly in the primaries, uh, that is that that sounds like exactly what was happening. Yeah, and when it got to the general election it got more it got more complicated, but yes. In the primaries it was about attacking, you know, kind of the sacred cows, as it were. So tell me about the phrase America first. That's a phrase that I think the left and the right hear really differently. But the people you talked with, if they responded well or poorly to that kind of a phrase, why? Why did they? You know, I think less I would let, I was less aware of American first, but more of the let's make America, you know. Right. Just- yeah. He's transitioning now a bit to America first as of, you know, winning the election. The, the 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 one you know make America great again was um, I mean that to me was just obvious in the sense that I think it is everybody that from the places I was in where that voted for Trump America didn't it wasn't viewed as great uh, to me at least it was you know it, it's a lot of symbolic acts he's been doing which is a sense of I mean it's very simple was um, in my mind uh, in some ways is the front row is about globalization it's about this sense of you know you. You look at a Larry Summers or a, a pundit on on the on the TV who scolds Trump, and 
their friends and their their friends are you know global and you know they go to Davos and they there's this whole you know we have to appease we have to think about other and no and and the, the people's mind is that's very much no you know that's that's why are we doing that because right now we're suffering here <laughs> you know yeah. why are we helping X when you know why over the last ten years have we been bending over backwards to do all these other things. When right here in our own country, there's communities that we're not paying attention to. So, I mean, that's kind of how it, you know, it's it's very much, you know, again, I spent my time in Michigan and Pennsylvania where a lot of jobs, factories were gone. So from that perspective, it's very much about like, hey, man, why is my factory gone? Well, and, you know, the Syrian refugee question is maybe a perfect prism to understand that difference there. I mean, you've got you have people going, are you kidding me? We're going to like bring in tens of thousands of people to just like add into the unemployed pool. You know what I mean? Like you can you can see that being really visceral and compelling if that is where you live. Right. And so, you, so, yeah. Go good. You know, the way I talk about it is I, I went to Lewiston, Maine. Um, and I went to Lewiston, Maine to look exactly at this point. Lewiston, Maine is a town of 35,000 people. Um, that prior to 1999 was entirely white and lost its factories. You know, the last one, I think, left in 93. And the town suffered a lot of economic. The, the downtown was uh, shuttered, you know, half the, you know, filled with crime and drugs. And in 1999, they, they placed some African families there, replaced um, some Togolese families. And then by 2009, there was 3,000 to 4,000 Somali refugees living there. Hmm. So I was speaking to an anthropologist um, at Bates College who, who, who studies the, the, you know, this whole issue. And she, as, she, as she phrased it, she says, look, when there's an inequality and there's a perception that someone is coming, someone who is different is coming into that inequality and jumping the queue, then there's going to be problems. And there's going to be a perception that there's going to be a lot of anger. And so how it's portrayed or how it's rendered is a function of where you are. So, you know, I, I met some people in Lewiston, some whites, who were very open-minded and were like, you know, hey, the Somali community is great. They've come in. They've, you know, they've, they've rebuilt the downtown. The kids are on the soccer team. We've won the state championship. Um, you know, it's, it's great. I get, to, I get to eat Somali food. It's all wonderful. Right. Um, and they tend to be people who, you know, it's hard to categorize them, but by and large, they're the educated set. But there's also some people you would, you know, there are people, there was a, a couple at the bar who had just come back from a Trump rally and they were very pro-Somali. So it's, it's not easy necessarily to categorize. But the people I, I, I met, the white working class people who were the most, and some of them were used ugly language and were just nasty about the Somalis. Both of them, the ones I dealt with, were also themselves economically struggling. And literally their food line was now longer. They they would get up once a month, week to go to the church food line. And now the line was longer. So the metaphor of waiting in line for the American dream or whatever, <laughs> theirs was not a metaphor. They were literally waiting in line for food and there were people who were now making that line longer, 
who just got to come there for free, basically, right. without and, doing anything. So in, in the mind of one of these gentlemen, now he was a Vietnam, he was a Navima, he was a vet, and he was a military vet, and he was on military disability, and I, I, I don't want to use the language he used because it was pretty damn crude, but his point was, is, look, I fought, you know, <laughs> 15, 15 years in the military for my country, it injured me. Yeah. I'm waiting in the same line of someone who once was, in his mind, an enemy. And, you know. Wow. And, you know, he was saying this in the bar where this couple who were a Trump supporter, they pushed back on him. They actually said, hey, man, it's not, come on. <laughs> they're, not, they're not doing any harm. They're good kids. So, But you, you, know, do, you do kind of notice that, like, the left needs to give a compelling narrative for why it's worth it to have them there. And it, I think a lot of commentators have been saying, especially Hillary's campaign, really did not make that case. Well, I think how these issues play out is a function of how it impacts your life. For this guy, I mean, <laughs> more refugees coming in the country means a longer line for him, literally. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, who lives in a town that, you know, is separated, lives in a nice house behind, a, I don't live in a gate, but, you know, some people might say, well, you know, I let them all in, but it doesn't impact you. <laughs> right. It imp- impacts other people. And you you always have to give context to it. Now, I, look, I, I always say that one of the things Trump is great at is making barroom arguments, and you have to respond to them by saying, well, actually... So he says, letting in 10,000 Syrians is going to make the country less safe. And at the face value, he's probably right, but there's the well-actually argument. Well, come on. <laughs> you know, not nearly as much as you say. No, it doesn't make – the benefits outweigh the negatives. Right. But, but those well-actually arguments have been argued – have been sold to much of America for 30 years, and they haven't worked out. They said, well, NAFTA is going to work for you. And you're like, well, no, it moved my factory. And you say, well, actually. <laughs> if you just move down to, you know, Dallas, you'll be fine, right? If you move to a major metropolitan yeah, just, just area. Just education and move, man. <laughs> yeah, you'll be good to go. <laughs> no, so, that's true. I don't want to get into the day, debate and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm for accepting more refugees. I, I think it's the humanitarian thing to do. I think it's the decent thing to do. I think it's the, um, I actually believe it's the, you know, just from the prism of, of safety and from the prism of growth and from all those kind of non-moral judgments, I also think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But, you know, having spent time in communities where the refugees are resettled, you just can't say you have to do it because it's the right thing to do. you got to sell it in a way that is a little more nuanced than that. Yeah, no, I agree. So these voices that you traveled to hear – um, and that now really, I mean, I, it sounds like these people are some of your truest community. Um, they certainly became that way in New York and you speak as if you very much are enmeshed in these communities. Is the left listening to the voices of these people and why or why not? You know, I, I'll say on a personal note, one of my biggest disappointments this election has been seeing the behavior of much of the left which I count myself as a member of, I think the quick and easy thing a lot of the reaction was racist, to yell racist and to yell stupid. Or even with the women's march to yell sexist, misogynist. Right. And, I, and I think the racist and sexist yellings are, 
are more true than not. And I think they're in the right direction. They don't need to be done the way they do. The stupid one is the one that I find particularly insulting and particularly um, immensely unhelpful and, 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 and also just stunningly arrogant and offensive. Again, when you take my framework for what it is, the people who are, have chosen to stay in a community and have chosen not to leave, you know, we have this false meritocracy in America, I believe, that we, some of us would like to think means we're an equal country because all you have to do is get an education. And we all know that most people know that that's not as simple as that, that the educational system is racially biased. It's, it matters where you start off. And for a lot of people who haven't succeeded by our measures, it's humiliating because the idea is, well, you failed because you just didn't get an education. It's your fault. (laughs) So then to turn around and say, without taking the sense, the context of that, of, you know, what it meant to fail. You grew up in a place where all the only educational opportunity is a community college 15 miles away. And, you know, you're adult, and by the age of 12, you're tasked with adult problems because of the dysfunction of the family you're born into or the lack of opportunities around you. So it's more complicated than that. So when you turn around, turn to them and say you're dumb, that's offensive because that's what they've been told all their life. So that one in particular I found immensely, immensely insulting. And it was, a lot of it was coming from the left to turn around and say to Trump voters, you're just dumb. Yeah, you're ignorant. Yeah. In terms of the yelling sexist and racist, I think what I always say is what I hope it means to be a liberal and a progressive is we we look at things as structural and we look at issues as being about not a flaw in character, but a flaw in politics and a flaw in structure. Interesting, yeah. So when we liberals rightfully look at working class minority neighborhoods, inner cities, and the right points out, oh, look, unemployment's at twice the level, crime is at twice the level, and then they say, oh, the residents of these neighborhoods are lazy or they're, or they're more violent. Um, the left rightfully picks up and says, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's look at context. They don't have job opportunities. The legal system is structured against them. The educational system is structured against them. The police are structured against them. And saying, when you blame something on atavistic failings, oh, you're lazy or you're weak or you're dumb, versus political structural failings, then you're doing it wrong. So the left, which rightfully supports looking at the problems in minority communities in a structural, contextual way doesn't do that with Trump voters. Exactly. So, We're not willing to send the same amount of sort of structural sympathy their way that we send to the inner cities. Yeah, and so when you turn around and you say, oh, you're not voting the way you're a racist or you're dumb, that's atavistic. And that's also not giving context. So let's say there's a higher percentage of racism in Trump voters. And there is, in my mind. Why? Why did the same community... Why did some, the counties, you know, that Battle Creek, Michigan were in, that Dubuque, Iowa were in, and Erie, Pennsylvania, why did they vote for Obama twice and then vote for Trump, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you got you to gotta say, what's causing this, you know, what's causing this? So fine, okay, let's say there's an uptick in racism. What's causing that? Why? Why? Yeah. It's not just because people all of a sudden randomly say, hey, I'm a racist. It's because there are structural flaws in the system that have pushed them in that direction. Yeah, these are not birthers if they voted for Obama twice. I mean, it's not – there's going to be some contingent of sort of far, far left, far, far right. You're not going to be able to reach them. 
they're probably not thinking very clearly. Fine, but we're talking about huge swathes of people who made some very, what would appear to be very odd decisions, but they were motivated by real reasons. So obviously Trump had his finger on the pulse of these people, especially during the primary. And honestly, still, he's he's still basically playing to his base, even now that he's president. He understands them to some degree, or at least he understands what kind of messages are working with them. But I have a joint question here. Is Trump really listening to them? Does he really hear what's going on? And then my second question is, is the rest of the GOP listening? And how are you seeing, is there a tension between Trump and the standard Republicans in terms of addressing these concerns? In terms of Trump, I feel, well, I'll, I'll kind of turn that one on the head and answer the last part first, which is, okay. look, in my mind, 75% of the reason we have Trump is because the GOP did not pay attention to its base. The Republican Party, who the white working class voted for, said, well, the GOP, the Republican Party, in my mind, and I've seen both of these because I grew up in a small Republican town in the South, and then I went to work on Wall Street, which was a rich Republican town. Yeah. And the Republican Party is two people, is two, two, two coalitions. It's, it's the white working class that I grew up with who you know, value all those things I just talked about. And then there's the wealthy Wall Street people who are part of the front row, who, contrary to popular opinion, are as socially liberal as most liberals. They don't care about um, social issues. They only care about economic issues. They want free trade. They want globalization. They want immigration. They're economically conservative and socially liberal. And that's what makes – and th- that's the GOP donor base. Those are the Bushes. They would run their party and say every, – every four years they would say they need the, the votes of the socially conservative white working class. And they're like, we're going to give you your social issues. You give me the economic issues. Then they would get to Washington and they would only care about the economic issues. That would end up messing – destroying the, work, the white working class. So eventually, the white working class got said, "You know what? I'm done with this. <laughs> it's over. You know, yeah. you're not doing anything for me socially or economically." And that's that's where Trump entered. So Trump knows the base better than the GOP elites. He certainly knows. He knows their frustrations economically. He's learned to understand their their social concerns. So yes, I think he does understand it better than Jeb Bush. He understands it better than, than the you know the I guess the Republicans are just Bushes. <laughs> um, well, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, etc. Yeah, the, the, you know the, he understands it better than the Republican elite. And will they learn? I don't know. I mean, the, the Republican Party has a choice. You know, they have a choice. They're going to either the Republican Party is now the party of Trump, and it's unclear what direction he's going to take that. If they're going to consume him because he gets tired and lazy. Or he's going to consume them. Yeah, it might, we might be looking at kind of a Lyndon Johnson takes up civil rights and the Democratic and Republican parties fundamentally change. You know, after that point, maybe we're going to get to a similar thing, not on race, but on, you know, whatever, nationalism or isolationism or something. I, I think um, there's a chance that he could – the Republican Party has – you know, the Democrats in my mind have become a Republican party, I meaning, you know – as a former banker, I can tell you that the Democratic Party has been as good for Wall Street as anybody has been. <laughs> mm. and that's a lot of things. That a, lot of, a lot of Democrats don't want to hear that, but I can tell you as 20 years as a banker, and I've written a few articles on it, the, the, the Clintons were very, very good to Wall Street. We're going to link to uh, one or two of those articles and make sure to send me those later. Those will be on the show notes on okay. depolarizedpodcast.com. So I want you to address 
two different kind of voters and listeners. The first one, I, I'm thinking of people who voted for Trump, but they didn't vote for Trump in the primary. Okay, so they're not his base, but they are concerned about some of the similar issues that the people were talking about, you know, authority, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of life, loyalty to country. They're worried, you know, maybe they have Republican views about taxes or, you know, fiscal policies or whatever. And they really think like, hey, you know, look, give this guy a shot. He's got a Republican House and Senate. He can really enact some of the stuff that we've been wanting for a long time. We gave you eight years of Obama, you know, someone like that who is genuinely not malicious in any way and just is like, look, I I just want to see if he can get some good done as a Republican. I would say to that person, you are 100% entitled to that opinion. The two parties, they take turns. In some ways, that's really good. You know, they kind of sharpen each other. Like the way I said it to someone recently was like, you know, under the Democrats, we make sure that these programs are compassionate. You know, the Republicans come in, maybe they make sure that they're like financially efficient. Like that's a perfect world scenario. But that is an example of like, hey, that's not the worst thing if there's some push and pull. What should this voter be looking out for, though, that should worry them that Trump might do so that they can kind of know, okay, if he starts crossing these kind of lines, I need to really rethink my support for him. What are those lines? To be honest, I I don't follow policy that closely, but I would say, you know, because I'm not in D.C. and I don't, but I would say that the things that we talked about earlier, the racism, the sexism and the – the, the kind of unhinged quality he has um, that, in my mind, uh, makes him um, <laughs> why I would never vote for him. The kind of the weird personal quirks that makes him get into arguments about crowd size, um, the vindictiveness. Does his unstable personality overwhelm him and lead to him to do kind of um, uh, unstable things that would endanger the country? I suppose, you, though, you just have to wait for one of those things to happen then, right? Because it's not, because you could just imagine someone saying, uh, yeah, that's like how he communicates. He's kind of a hothead, but I still want to just see what he will actually do. And it's kind of hard to argue with that, right? Um, I think, you know, I mean, I think when I would talk to those people, the Wall Street friends, I'd say, look, man, if I were you, I'd be really worried because he's going to put in a lot of corruption. A lot, You know, there's going to be crony capitalism coming you know, you think if you think Latin America was filled with crony capitalism, wait till you see the, the amount of deals are going to be done. Sweetheart deals are going to be given to people. So, if you're a pro business guy, the business environment is going to be pretty, um, pretty corrupt. <laughs> okay, so be looking out for corruption then. Yeah, yeah corruption, personal corruption. Um, well, he didn't divest of his company. He put his family members in charge of it. Some of them have like clearance for weird international leader meetings. You know, he's got his son-in-law as his main advisor. He's got, you know, deals all over the world. I think the the gentleman, I forget his exact, I don't know how to pronounce his name, at the Washington Post who's been documenting his uh, financial dealings. Yeah. I think follow that gentleman. And um, it begins with an F, the last name. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Okay. Um, you know, read read his columns. Read, read you know, he's been documenting Trump's charity work and, and kind of the, the just the corruption in there. I know. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I'm going to post that big one where he the the amazing investigative story of like how he found out about the Trump portrait, mm-hmm. which is just a great read. It was like spotlight. You know, it's just yeah. But, but that 
that, that sort of cheesy cronyism and corruption, I think, is going to take play, going to be writ large in his administration. And I think you 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 read, you know, it's going to, it's going to get lost in the. Unfortunately, it's going to get lost in all the the volatility. And you know, it's something that I I think you, you read this gentleman's writings and, and if, if you know if I was somebody who was more obsessed with policy, that's what I'd be doing is reading this gentleman religiously. Yeah, because he's done a great job of of you know going through sifting through all the details. Okay, now speak to a different listener, um, and this is probably more like our average listener. But uh, say I'm your kind of standard West or East Coast thirty something, late twenty something, usually vote Democrat, pretty liberal, but I'm really willing to open myself up to the stories of other people. Where should I be looking? How can I listen better and cross this cultural divide that's feeling more and more vast? I think the, the the phrase I always say is just listen to other people and 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 try to put yourself in experiences you might not otherwise put yourself in. So, you know, I think one of the things I try to get across to my fellow progressives is we're obsessed with acknowledging our privilege, and I think a lot of us have a lot more privilege than we understand we do, and it's 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 kind of what I call cultural capital. We come with a lot of, you know, when you when you have a a, a good education. You're you're very privileged, and it comes with a lot of privileges. It's hard to see. It comes with kind of knowing things and knowing how the world operates and knowing how cities operate and knowing how academics operate. And you end up end up coming up with this habitas, this this toolkit that I think a lot of people don't have. And them not having it makes them very feel very insecure and frustrated. And I think acknowledging that you have a privilege and your education brings you a privilege and doing that in a way that means stepping outside of your comfort zone. So, I mean, I'll, these are trite examples and I get made fun of, but I'll make them. I mean, it's like, you know, go to McDonald's if you don't go to McDonald's and hang out and talk to people or do things that you might think are not necessarily that valuable or you, you think are kind of lowbrow but ultimately is how most of American, a lot of Americans live um, and put yeah. yourself in you know, that position of go to a church. You know, I'm presuming a portion of your listeners already do that, but go to a different church. When I'm on the road, I go to churches and I'm, I happen to be agnostic. And, uh, but I attend, you know, in the last few weeks, in the last few parts of this trip, I, I try to go as many services as possible, different denominations. I'll go to, whatever, and just sit and listen and watch. And uh, you don't have to announce who you are. You don't have to, if you disagree with their views, you don't have to stand up and say that. You know, you can just say, I'm here to, to learn and to listen, and I'm curious. Yeah, hard to imagine too many people being frustrated with you for that. <laughs> no, I mean, I've, I've been warmly invited in every church I've gone to, and I've gone to churches that have been very weird by by what people would call weird. I mean, I've been the only white gentlemen in many black churches. I've been the only white gentleman in Hispanic churches. I've been in mosques. I've been in synagogues, you know, and, yeah. and everybody accepts me. Why do you care so much about this stuff? Well, I think there's, you know, there's two answers. One is it's just, it makes me happy doing this. And so it's in a very selfish place. I'm happy. I always jokingly say I'm, I'm happiest when I'm in a place where I shouldn't be. And so that means, you know, walking unannounced into a, into a small Pentecostal church in Kentucky. But I think ultimately, you know, I spend most of my time 
on what people would call the, the fringes and boundaries of, of places where things are statistically are bad. Places that have high poverty rates or places with high rates of crime or places with high rates of addiction. And that's, that's where I go. And part of it is just me being a scientist, which is I think you learn the most when things are pushed to the boundaries. When you see extremes, that's when kind of the truth or the, the salient issues are revealed. But ultimately, it's more than that, which is that, you know, it's ultimately optimistic in the sense that the resiliency of people, um, the reveal, resiliency of humans to survive and not only survive, thrive in these situations, to me is ultimately very um, uplifting and, and very, um, very encouraging. So I know we're entering a pretty ugly period, and I know we've had a pretty ugly period. And so when I step back and I look at that from a long view and I say, well, this is where we are, ugh, um, this is where we're going, ugh, what gives me a pause and the only thing, the thing that keeps me hope, hopeful is I look back on the whatever, you know, 175,000 miles I've put in my car and all the people I've met along the way, and every one of them to a person has treated me well at an individual level. I've broken down places where strangers have come together and helped me. I've, you know, <laughs> I've been in situations where people who didn't know who I was offered to let me in their lives and uh, let me let me listen to them and let me document and take pictures of them. So at an individual level, the decency of people, especially when it's pushed to extremes, has been revealed. And so I find ultimately that very uplifting and very comforting. So in that way, in a strange way, I suppose, it makes me happy. It keeps me, um, keeps me going. Well, you might be agnostic, but that sure sounds to me a lot like Christianity. And so that, I mean, I don't care if you don't think so, but there's, there's something there for uh, listeners who are religious uh, to think about. And I think especially, I know a pretty good chunk of the listeners of this show are kind of left-leaning Christians and, you know, left-leaning Christians can get pretty self-righteous. I've been guilty of this about our social justice platforms, but if we really take Jesus's teaching seriously, then we need to extend that compassion toward the forgotten white members of our own society as well. So, dude, thank you so much. Sorry to end on a little homily there. Well, that's um, okay. I mean, I was I was basically raised by nuns, so nice. They rubbed off on you. Yeah, you know, I I, I will say that honestly, no, the last uh, four years of I think about what the nuns taught me quite a bit. Awesome. Well, Chris. Uh, this is phenomenal conversation. Thank you for not only your time, but your activities and sharing them with us. Where can people find you online if they want to stay in touch? Um, the best is on Twitter. Um, it's Chris underscore Arnadi, A-R-N-A-D-E. And if you have a personal question, um, you can email me. I'll get my email is Chris at, at Arnadi.com, C-H-R-I-S at a-R-N-A-D-E.com, and I don't mind emails. But uh, on Twitter is where I kind of announce where I'm going. I'm, I, I spend a lot of time on the road, and I like to talk to people, and I like to stop by, and especially like to stop by churches and, and come in and, and, and listen, and especially smaller churches. So if you follow me on Twitter and you see that I'm in your neighborhood and, you, and you're part of a congregation, I would, I would love to come. <laughs> yeah, also I saw uh, just today I think you were posting that you – We'll go speak at any college that's within a six-hour drive of your house. 
Uh, yep. And uh, I'm going to, I was offered to go to Middlebury. At the least, I asked for a, a hoodie from the college <laughs> um, and a McDonald's co- coffee in the morning. Um, uh, at the most, um, a room would be great to sleep in, but um, otherwise, I, I, don't, uh, I don't discriminate. I, I'm also willing when I'm on the road, and again, my schedule is is will be posted on will posted is I tweet where I'm at. But in the first two weeks of February, I'll be I'll be most of my time in in Ohio, and then the first two weeks of March, I'll be in Minnesota and um, in Wisconsin, and then two first two weeks of April, I'll probably be in Oklahoma. So so yeah, if you guys are college students or work at a college and you're interested in having Chris come speak, you should get a hold of him. And man, thank you so much again. And we'll just keep following your work. All right. Thank you again. Thanks, Chris. Man, I just, I get inspired when I meet and talk to people who have really made it their work to go to places the rest of us won't go. Head to depolarizedpodcast.com for notes from this show. We've got a bunch of articles that we talked about in our conversation. Make sure to follow Chris on Twitter. He really is a great balancing perspective. Thanks for considering supporting the Patreon. Again, that's at patreon.com slash depolarize, or there's also a button at depolarizedpodcast.com. We've got the Facebook discussion group going strong. You can just search for Depolarized Discussion Group. It'll show up on Facebook. That's really become a beautiful place for people to practice what they preach. You can follow me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. And as usual, please share this episode with anyone you think might like it. Next week, I am so pumped. We've got Michael Ware, author of Reclaiming Hope. He was an Obama aide. And he tells a story that breaks my heart. I won't give away too much now, but basically there was an abortion compromise that was about to go through and it failed. Listen to the episode to find out why it failed and why I was banging my head against the desk during that conversation. But Michael is great. He's done some really great work and has some great insight. And I can't wait for you guys to hear that conversation. So we'll see you next week. Thank you.